0: So when I was driving home from working on this sermon uh, at Panera one day, my car, or my van that I was driving, was running out of gas, and as you know, when you're starting to run out of gas, if you have one of these sort of cars, there's a little light that shows up on the dashboard that starts to tell you, you're low on gas. You need to stop and get gas. And the, our van is, is newer, and so this is the first time it happened to me in this new van, and it has this nice little feature that tells you how many miles you can go until you run out of gas. And I had one of those when I was in high school, a car that had that. And there are two sort of people in this world. There are the sort of people like me who say, oh, I have 11 miles left. Okay, I'll just keep going. I'm busy right now. I'll get it later. And you kind of put it off until it's like .1 mile left. And then there's the type of people like my wife who are like, we have half a tank. We need to fill up now. Like, I don't want to get it close to even a quarter tank. Okay, that little gas light, though, is meant to serve as a warning, a warning light of, hey, you know, if you keep heading in this direction, you're going to end up on the side of the road without any gas. And in today's passage, the judgment passages that we see today, we also uh, see God's judgments functioning, something like that gas light. Hey, Watch out, if you head down this road, this is what's coming your way. Today's passage shows us, in summary, that God's judgments in this life, the judgments that God pours out on humanity in history, in this world, they serve as warnings or foretastes of the ultimate judgment that is to come. God's temporal judgments in history serve as warnings and foretastes of the ultimate judgment that is to come. Let me just show you some of this idea. So here we get, in in the book of Revelation, we get series of judgments and so we have the seals and we have the bowls. Here we have the trumpets. The question is why does he depict these judgments as trumpets? Well, trumpets in the Old Testament had a lot of different functions Um, One of them was to like announce the worship of God's people, bringing the people together. Another one was the idea of war, using trumpets in war to sound an attack. So you think of like the story of Jericho, where after they marched around the city of Jericho, the seven priests blew their seven trumpets and the walls fell. And so here the idea with the trumpets is very much like a divine war. God is waging his holy war against rebels. Or you think of Joel chapter 2, which is alluded to in this passage, as we'll get to. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 says this it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy hill. Do you see the parallelism? Zion and and holy, holy hill or holy mountain are parallel, but then trumpet and alarm are parallel. The trumpet is an alarm. It's to say, hey, watch out, as the verse continues. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. God's judgment is coming. Blow the trumpet. Sound the alarm. It's a warning. And what is this warning supposed to do? Move to the end of our passage, which Matt just read. Chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. It said, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. They did not repent, or at the beginning of verse 21, nor did they repent. The, the, the trumpets are warnings to prompt us to repent while there is still time. The trumpets, these judgments in this life, are foreshadowings of the ultimate judgment to come they display as a preview the consequences of our rebellion against God. And thus, they are effectively saying to us, you need to repent. And as we read this passage, these two chapters, you you likely noticed a lot of allusions, a lot of similarities to what we know of the exodus in Scripture. The exodus where God delivers his people out of Egypt. So, for example, in this passage, uh, in the first trumpet, there's mention of hail and fire, which matches one of the plagues, as well as water turning to blood, darkness, locust. Those were also plagues poured out on Egypt. In fact, in this chapter, in, verse nine, in chapter 9, verses 18 and 20, he actually calls these, uses the language of plagues. Those who did not repent of these plagues. And also, as we see, another similarity to the Exodus is that these are coming in response to the mistreatment of God's people. Just like in the Exodus, the people cried, God, the Egyptians are enslaving us, they are mistreating us. So here at the beginning of the chapter, uh, we see that God is hearing their prayers as incense, and He's responding to the mistreatment. In other words, the pattern of the Exodus um, is, is, or the Exodus is serving as a pattern, as it does oftentimes in Scripture of God's judgment and God's redemption. You've seen this already in the book of Revelation. Basically, the Exodus, which was localized to Egypt and Israel, is now being escalated to the whole world. It's a worldwide version of the Exodus happening in the book of, in the book of Revelation. And the reason I raise this is because you remember in the Exodus what was one of the intentions of the plagues. Moses came to Pharaoh and he said, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. You need to let us go worship at the mountain. You need to let us us be released and liberated. And Pharaoh said no, and God responded by pouring out the ten plagues. And in all those cases, Pharaoh's heart, the text says, was hardened. He hardened his heart. He said no. Even as the plagues came forth as judgment, trying to get uh, Pharaoh in that sense to break, and let the people go, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not. And so similarly here, the trumpets are poured out on humanity to say, repent, submit to God's will. And so in our sermon today, we are going to, what we're going to do is, first of all, we're just going to overview the whole passage. I'm just going to fly through the, six, the first six trumpets that we have here. And then we are going to have, uh, we're going to look at seven themes. I thought it was fitting in the book of Revelation with the apocalyptic use of numbers. Seven is an important number. Why not do a sermon with seven themes or seven points? Um, Also, I thought in honor of the book of Revelation that my sermon length should be a time, times, and half the time. It's normal length. So you may be here a while. Okay, I'm kidding about the last thing, or at least I hope I am, Um, or at least you hope I am. I'm not kidding about the seven, though. So, let's do an overview, and then we will get in. Okay, so first some preliminaries, though. We've got to remember, as we're in apocalyptic literature, um, what is happening here, what is being described here, is a vision that John had. So, this is, this is symbolic. This is not like a literal description of something that's like literally going on, but John is having a vision, and he's literally describing to us the vision. And of course the vision reflects very real things, it's not just made up, but it's communicating very real theological truths. The other thing that we note as we're in the Revelation is that in each of these uh, sequences of judgment, we, as we've shown already, they span from the ascension of Christ, from Christ's death and resurrection seated in heaven, they span from that moment, the Christ event, to Christ's second coming. So in the series of seven, we're we're talking about that these things are happening over the course of the entirety of the church age. Now, that's not to say that in the book of Revelation, oftentimes, it, it makes references to things in the first century. Like here, it very well could be depicting things like the fall of Rome that was anticipated. But it's not exhausted by those first century references because ultimately, each series of seven will climax in the very second coming of Christ. Okay, and then with that then, in each of these sequences, we're not talking about like first we have the seals and then later God's going to have the trumpet judgments and then the bowls. Remember, they all sort of overlap with each other. This, the fancy term is recapitulation or, or you could say parallelism. So the seals are describing the same era from the cross to the second coming as the trumpets, the cross to the second coming. They each overlap, okay? The NFL season is coming up and if you like watching the, Uh, football, at times if there's a touchdown, okay, we're not sure if Aaron Rodgers is going to be on the Packers, but whoever the quarterback is this year, say he throws to Devontae Adams and Devontae Adams scores, what's likely to happen? They're going to show a replay. Now, every time they show a replay, you don't go, wow, the Packers just scored. Oh, they scored again. Oh my goodness, they just scored three times within the last 30 seconds. No, you understand it's a replay of the same event from a different angle. And the book of Revelation is doing that as well. It's it's replaying the same essential course of history, but from different angles. And so here we get the angle of the trumpets. Now, the first four trumpets. The first trumpet, we have hail and fire. The idea is probably like lightning. So like hail with lightning, and it's mixed with blood, destroying vegetation, destroying the earth, the trees and the grass second trumpet we get a great burning mountain it could be that this is like describing like a volcano a mountain that is is on fire thrown into the sea just a mountain or a volcano that explodes into the sea and the sea is turned to blood the third trumpet we get a star that comes crashing down making bitter wormwood the fresh waters wormwood is this uh, plant that makes things bitter and so he's using that imagery And then the fourth trumpet, we get the celestial bodies, the sun, moon, and stars are struck, and they're darkened. And then we come at the end of chapter 8 to the introduction of the last three trumpets, 5, 6, and 7, which he calls three woes. And they're called woes because these judgments are especially severe. And also we get a shift, whereas the first four trumpets target creation— earth, sea, water, and celestial bodies, here now the target moves from creation to humanity. But specifically, unbelieving humanity. As in uh, chapter 8, verse 13, it says, those who dwell on earth. Those who dwell on earth. And that is a technical phrase in the book of Revelation, specifically for non-believers. Also in chapter 9, uh, in the fifth trumpet, when he's when we're talking about these locust scorpion things, it says you can only attack those who do not have the seal of God. And remember, the seal of God from chapter seven are those who are marked off as God's people. So these judgments are for unbelievers. Now let's look at the first, or sorry, the fifth trumpet, the first woe, and the fifth trumpet. The last, just to be clear, the last those three woes are the last three trumpets. If I didn't say that. So the fifth trumpet, here we get a locust-like plague of tormenting demons. Now this section is alluding to Joel. If you remember, if you're familiar with the book of Joel, one of the minor prophets, in Joel there's a locust plague that attacks God's people and it's painted there as an army. The locust is depicted like an army coming in and destroying God's people as one of the judgments of God. And Revelation is picking up on that imagery. It's very clear he's alluding to Joel here. Except here, they're not literal locusts, but they're demons. Notice, most locusts eat grass. They eat vegetation, right? But what did the passage say? It says, do not touch the grass. They they actually will attack the people, not the grass. That's not what a normal locust does. That's weird. What's going on here? We also see that they're unleashed from the abyss. And the abyss in Revelation is sort of this, this symbolic place of evil coming out of the center of the earth. It's this place of the origin of evil. Later the beast will come out of the abyss and Satan will be locked up in the abyss. So these are, these are demonic beings coming out of the abyss. The text says that their king, uh, Abaddon, Apollyon, or destroyer, is the angel of the abyss. So, the, so they're led by an angel. So likely they're also angels who are led by this angel who's the, the angel of the abyss. So this is likely Satan. Satan is their leader. In other words, these are demons. No, I don't know about you, but I have not experienced a locust plague in my life. Um, I'm guessing most of us have not. And so what I did is not the normal sort of thing you do when you're working on sermon interpretation. I went on YouTube. Um, and I looked up locust plagues because i wanted to see like what does this look like what is this and i would recommend doing that it's quite interesting okay it is crazy a locust plague is insane guys like they're everywhere it's unreal and they're just eating absolutely everything this vision like this portrait of demons as as locusts that's terrifying Okay, locusts, for example, they can a locust plague can be a hundred square miles. A hundred square miles, within half a mile, a half quarter mile, or not a half quarter mile, that didn't make any sense. Within a, a half square mile is what I meant to say. You can have a total of eight. What is it? Eight billion locusts within that space. It's crazy. And so he says here that they are going to be there for five months. They're allowed to torment for five months. And five months would have been the literal lifespan of a locust. So whereas normally, though, if a locust plague comes in, it's there for, you know, maybe a while and eventually it moves on. It follows the wind. Here, they sit for the entire lifetime of the locust. So the normal locust plague, but they're just sitting there five months. I mean, he uses this language of, like, when they come out of the abyss, they make a pillar of smoke that blocks the sun. And part of me wonders, with this pillar of smoke, they come out of the pillar of smoke. Part of me wonders, is it really a pillar of smoke? Or is it the idea that they look like a pillar of smoke, but the pillar is actually the locust? Like, that's how many locusts there are. I mean, this is an absolutely terrifying depiction. It's like the stuff of your nightmares. Take, like, your nightmare of of a worst monster you can think of and then multiply it by a thousand, and that's these locusts. The description he gives is like of a locust, but exaggerating their natural anatomy to make them just monstrous. And so the people, they seek death, but death, it says, flees from them. This is is a picture of the demonic torment and oppression that humanity experiences in this life, that unbelieving humanity experiences. The sixth trumpet, then, is the utter destruction, um, is utter destruction at the hands of an unimaginable army. And this parallels the sixth bowl, okay, so these parallel the bowls. And the sixth bowl, which is commonly called Armageddon, that's where we get that word Armageddon, um, also in the sixth bowl, we talk about, it talks about the Euphrates, and so there's a lot of parallelism here. And so together these two sixes, the six trumpet and six bowl, present to us this final judgment, this climax of history in the imagery of the destruction of a great battle. Both of them present this great battle. In our passage here, the trumpets plays on the fears of the Parthian invasion from from the other side of the Euphrates River, the east, which was the border of the Roman Empire. And so the the Parthians had attacked Rome from across the Euphrates uh, River. And so this was a common fear that people had. You might think of it like during the 80s or earlier than that in America, the the fears that people had of nuclear weapons during the Cold War. These people just kind of like lived in fear constantly. And that's kind of what he's playing on here is that the Roman people, they would have had fears of a, of a Parthian invasion, except it's magnified. The Parthians, at their very worse, look tame compared to this. Okay? this. This army is absolutely massive. When you add up the numbers, it's 200 million. That's 1,000 times the Romans' standing army. That's more than the population of the entire Roman Empire at that time. To put it in our context, that's two-thirds of the current U.S. population is an army. Or Milwaukee, multiply it by 337. And not only its size, but again, the description of these folks as well is vicious and terrifying. They kill with fire and sulfur coming out of their mouths and they have these snake-like things for tails. And so they kill a third of the human population a third, one out of every three people. And so what are some of the themes we see in this text, some of the lessons? What is is this revelation conveying to us? The first one I want to show us is this, the prayers of the saints. And this will be the longest one. The other ones will move quicker. But first I want us to note the theme of the prayers of the saints. You know, sometimes if you are reading like a history book, you'll read of these Times of history, like I just mentioned in the Cold War, and you you think of people living through the Cold War, or you think of like our grandparents and such, they living living through World War II, and you think of these like tremendous moments of history. Like, what would it be like to live through one of those times that the history book books is writing about? Or even now, COVID, they'll probably include in the history books. And we think of like, wow, like that was a crazy time to live, right? And we're kind of living through it now. Oftentimes, though, people who live through these moments. Like most of us right now in COVID have basically no impact on it. Someone who lived through the through World War II like a good deal of many people that kind of did its thing and they had no impact on the course of how those things went. However you feel about COVID most of us want something to be done and change we want things to be better right but most of us have very little control over what happens And nonetheless, we live with this desire to want to make a difference in the course of history. We'll look at chapter 8, verses 2 and 4, and we see the role of our prayers. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of God. Of the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And this is this is uh, a picture of kind of like temple tabernacle imagery, where they they would the priests would offer incense at the at the altar that would fill up the room. And the censer is kind of like this big bowl where you carry the incense. And so the idea here is, notice it says that the incense is offered with the prayers of the saints. Look back at uh, chapter 5, verse 8 with me. Chapter 5, verse 8, the scene of the Lion and the Lamb. It says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So this is a theme in Revelation that the 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 censers uh, the of these bowls with the incense. The incense represents the prayers of the saints. And likewise, if you look at chapter nine, verses thirteen in our section, it says. Uh, that, in, that part of the sixth trumpet is that a voice was heard from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Calling back to this earlier section in chapter 8 where we're talking about the altar. We're talking about saints and their prayers coming from the altar. And so what do we get here? We see that the prayers of God's people are depicted as a pleasing incense to God. The incense is this picture of this this, uh, delightful smelling stuff. If you've you've ever been in a high church, sometimes they have censers that are like these little boxes that the priest like waves around and lets smoke out and it smells, okay? The idea is it's supposed to smell good, okay? And if you have smelled incense and you don't think it smells good, think of something that you think does smell good. Like a lot of people like bacon, I guess, so think of bacon or whatever, okay? Like the idea is it smells good. What does that convey to us though? When it rises into the the nostrils of God, so to say, he is pleased with our prayers. It smells good to God. He wants to answer them. He's delighted in our requests. And so we see his, then, his response in verse 5. Then the angel, understanding that God has, has heard the prayers and is responding to them, then that angel, he took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, like these embers from that, from that uh, altar, and he threw it on the earth. And there are peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The idea here is that represents judgment. That that the angel, having understood God heard these people's prayers, he then takes those embers, throws it to the earth, and says, in response to the prayers, God is judging the world. And the four trumpets are like an outworking of that prayer. You notice that each element, it's like something is thrown down. So as the angel uh, depicting God's response to the prayer throws the embers down, what do we have? we have? We have hail and fire. They're thrown down to the earth. We have the great mountain is thrown into the sea. We have the, the star. It, it fell. Wormwood fell. And then we have the sun and the, and the moon and the stars being struck. Things are falling down. That all of these judgments... In other words, are are an outflow of the prayers of the saints. And as I said in the sixth trumpet, that that is introduced by hearing a voice from the altar where the prayers are occurring. That all of these judgments are a response to the prayers of God's people. And this makes sense because as we saw in chapter 6, in the fifth seal, the people prayed for God. The martyrs under the altar. Same location. The martyrs under the altar pray for God, when will you avenge us? And now here we finally get the response with God's judgment. And it fits what we know of the Exodus, right? As we said, in the Exodus is a two-sided coin to this. God is hearing the cries of his people, just like in the Exodus. And he responds with judgment on God's enemies, which means liberation for God's people. It is both judgment and liberation. And we might be somewhat uneasy with this. We might think, wow, like, that seems very harsh. You know, what do we make of this whole idea of our prayers for vengeance, for God to execute judgment but we probably wouldn't be so uneasy with this concept if we faced the brutal persecution that many Christians have across the world and across church history. We probably wouldn't find this as, as so of an uneasy concept if our, if our husbands and our brothers were killed and our, our wives and our daughters raped. We think of the imprecatory psalms of the Old Testament where we ask for God to, to execute not, not our vengeance, not, not just be nasty on our behalf, but God, do what is right. Judge what is wrong. Judge the evildoer. And here's the thing, our prayers, according to this passage, are actually bringing about the events of history to its final end. It is bringing the justice and the salvation that we pray for and that we long for. And so the idea of, like, living through the Cold War, living through World War II, where it's like, how much of a difference do you make? Similarly, if you were to write the White House and say, you know what, uh, President, I got all these ideas, um, idea number one, idea number two, and you send off that letter to the White House, if you were to get a letter in response, it's probably not going to be, oh, hey, Matt, those are some great ideas let me send you my private jet so you can come down here and help me solve a whole bunch of other problems, right? You're going to get a form letter that says something very generic that has a a printed autograph of the president and it's nothing meaningful. But when we pray to God, this passage says that God actually hears our prayers, he cares, and he uses our prayers to actually change things. That we long for the kingdom. We long for restoration to come about. And this passage says that our prayers will actually realize those things. One commentator, uh, Tim Chester, says this. He says, it may be that your unanswered prayers are in one of those bowls. God is waiting until the right time. And one day your prayer will be poured out before the throne and will unleash the renewal of all things. So, when you pray for justice, the ultimate answer may be the final judgment. And when you pray for peace, the ultimate answer may be the reign of the Lamb. When you pray for healing, the ultimate answer may be a resurrected body. When you pray for joy, the ultimate answer may be the wedding feast of the Lamb. Our prayers. Bring about the restoration of this creation. Secondly, we see in this, in this section, we see the divine judgment, God's judgment in response to sin. And so we see the description of sin in this passage. It's described as idolatry, as we saw, that the, 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 the rest of mankind do not repent of their idols. Worshiping that which is not God. If we skip to the end of this major section, at the end of chapter 11 with the seventh trumpet we see in verse 18 that it says the nations raged but your wrath came it's literally that the nations are wrathful but your wrath came against them and this is an allusion to psalm 2 where we see the nations are coming together conspiring against god and his messiah and God is pouring out his wrath against those who are rebels against him. So we have sin depicted as, as idolatry, worshiping something other than God. It, it's depicted as rebellion against our creator. And in verse 18, at the very end of that verse, it says, For God is destroying the destroyers of the earth. Sin is, de- is described as corrupting and destroying the good creation as God has made it. And so God is responding to the destroyers by destroying them. And again, I think this pushes against our sensibilities. We, we, we were like, wait a minute, this, this passage is a lot of judgment. That doesn't seem right. You see, the thing is, though, is that we tend to think that we're not so bad. And secondly, that God's not so holy. As medieval theologian Anselm said, though, you have not yet considered the gravity of sin if we find that the judgment of God is, is something that strikes us as off, we have not yet considered the seriousness of sin. That we, 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 we tend to think that we're not so bad and God must not be so holy. Our sin doesn't actually deserve the punishment that it's due and God must not actually care that much about our sin. But the cross of Christ speaks a different word, does it not? It says that the very grounds by which we can have acceptance with God, by which we can be saved from his judgment, was the very death of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So that all those who trust in Christ can then be saved from that judgment. Thirdly, we see the divine control over these events. We see God's control over these events. There's a repeated uh, refrain in this passage. In, in verse 2, eight, chapter 8, verse 2, God gives the trumpets. To the angels the judgment in other words depicted in the trumpets is given to the angels god is the one granting it to them and then in verse three he was given much much incense the angel who offers the incense is given the incense chapter 9 verse 1 this star this angel that falls from heaven to earth is given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit he's he's given authority to open these things he doesn't do it on his own authority he's given the authority to do so And in verse 3, when the smoke came and then from the smoke came the locusts on the earth, they were given power. They didn't have the power to do this unless it was given to them, presumably by God, in other words. And the locusts in verse 4 were told not to harm the grass. They're told, they're given instructions, and they are allowed in verse, verse 5. They were allowed to torment. All of this is this idea of permission, that God is granting them permission. This isn't something that they have prerogative on their own to do. A voice commands the angels release in the sixth trumpet. God is, is releasing the angels. And then he says that those four angels in the sixth trumpet were prepared, verse 15, they were prepared for the day, the month, and the hour that God is in control down to the very details of the exact timing of the judgment. All of this screams that none of this is chaos or chance. That our Lord is in control and he is directing history, even control over the evil that serves as a means of his judgment. Fourthly, we see that all of creation is affected by God's judgment. So in the first four judgments, the first four um, trumpets and this is the same in the bowls, the first four bowls we see that the, the, the things that are affected are notice the earth, the sea, the rivers or the fresh water and the sky. Representing all of creation. Four in the book of Revelation is often depicted as all of creation. And so we get the earth, the sea, that is like the salt water, the fresh water in the sky. All of creation is affected by God's judgment. This pictures then the fullness of God's judgments, which encompass and span across the entire world. God's judgment is across the entire world. All of creation is touched by his judgment. You think about Genesis 1 and 2, that as God creates, and He creates over here the, the sky, and He creates over here the land, and He creates the waters. Here it's like a decreation is happening. He's taking those things that He's so ordered, and now He is decreating. He is judging all aspects of His creation. This shows us that all of life in this present age is affected by the judgments of God. No aspect of creation is left out. God is summoning every aspect of our environment to indict human rebellion. And this also means that no sphere of life is beyond the domain of God's judgment. There's no place that you can hide. As Hebrews 4 says, all creation is naked and exposed before God to whom we must give an account. God knows our sins. We will have to give an account to him Thank goodness for the gospel, right? Fifthly, the judgments are limited. The judgments here are limited. You'll notice from the seals, the fourth seal, it said that the the fourth horseman was allowed to kill a fourth, to destroy a fourth. And here you'll notice that it's increased to a third. And then finally in the bowls, it will be total. So we go from a quarter to a third to total. And so there is an increase in the judgments as we go throughout the book, sort of this escalating sense that we get. But still, with a third, that is still limited, that is still restricted. We're not at the full yet. So we get here a, repeat, a, a repeated, when, it, when there's the first trumpet, is it, it's a third of the trees and the grass, it's a third of the sea becomes blood. It's a third of the rivers. It's a third of the, of the celestial bodies and their, and their light. There's limitation. Or with the, with the fifth trumpet, with the, those, those locust demon things, they're, they're said you can torment but don't kill. Or even with the idea of five months, even as severe as we saw that is, five months is still five months. There's a limit to it. Here and no farther. And so by limiting the judgments, God is actually expressing mercy. It's an expression of his mercy to, to then say, Hey, listen, I'm restraining my wrath to allow you room and time to repent. Because that's where all this is headed at the end of chapter 9. They didn't repent. The aim is that they would repent. God is restraining, restraining his judgment, though, that they might repent. Romans 2 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing though that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance these judgments are supposed to be an awakening to say hey wake up this is where your sin leads you repent in his book the problem of pain cs lewis says this he says god whispers us sorry god whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It, that is pain, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sixthly, we see the futility of our idols, the vanity, the worthlessness of our idols. The New City Catechism, which is the catechism that our kids use in the class, as Dan was mentioning, it asks one of the questions: Is this what is idolatry? And I, I like the answer. It says this: It says idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the Creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. And we see here in this chapter that is exactly what the people have fallen into in verse in chapter 9 verse 20 again the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues they did not repent notice of the works of their hands nor giving up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk you're notice they didn't stop worshiping the things their hands made you're not worshiping the one who made you, the one who made your hands. You're worshiping the things that your hand made. You made it, and now you're worshiping it. It can't see. It can't hear. It can't walk. It can't save you. And isn't this like the Exodus as well, where the Exodus was judgments? In effect, the Exodus was God's judgment on the, on the, on the quote-unquote, gods of Egypt. Egypt's gods didn't save them. Egypt's gods were no match for the God of Israel. To those who worship parts of creation as idols, God's judgment over creation here demonstrates that his he has power over such created thing. And that he alone is God. To worship an idol is to worship the creation and God is saying I have control over creation. I can judge creation if I want. It shows that God alone is God, not our idols. And so, to our idols, whether that's whatever we look to for significance and security and our hope and our happiness, whether that's our careers, or wealth, or education, our family, politics, health—you name it—our world is just is, is just searching for something to provide significance and security. These things ultimately cannot save us. We make gods, we look for security out of all these created things. As Romans says that we we worship the creation rather than creator and we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. But this creation, all of our idols, are subject to God's judgment. And so seven, we need changed hearts. You know, you would think that in the light of these judgments, like you think about Pharaoh when he faced the plagues. When you think about these trumpets, you'd think... Rationally speaking, this would cause people to repent. This would break you. But the thing is, we learn something about the nature of human sin, that humanity is stubborn in the face of God's judgment. We want to do it our way. We don't repent. We're like high school Kirk ignoring the gaslight. So we need something more than judgment to break us. We need the softening of our hearts by the gospel itself. And so as we move to the Lord's Supper, let me remind you of the gospel. That which is of first importance, that which we have received, that Christ died for our sins and he was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. And here's the beauty of the new covenant. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the new covenant, Jesus says. In a famous New Covenant passage, Jeremiah 31, one of the promises, God says, is that I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. No more will it be trumpets against us. No more will it be the sounding of God's war against us. But it's the sound of peace. God is declaring peace to you. Our our iniquity is forgiven. And how is that? God has put his law in our hearts. He's, he's written his law inside of us so that we have repented. We see the beauty of Jesus and we trust in him. God's judgments ultimately haven't, haven't converted us. It's ultimately by seeing the beauty of Christ. It's by God transforming our very hearts that we have come to, be, to have peace with God and to become friends with God. And it's worth just reminding ourselves we never want to forget this. The very gospel, as we see, is that God is absolutely holy and he is wrathful, righteously in, in his goodness, wrathful with sin. Angry with our sin. Angry with the decreating, the destroying of his good creation. Angry with us for dehumanizing ourselves with rebellion against God. We're not meant to who, who we're supposed to be when we worship idols. And in response to our sin, God says there is going to be justice, there is going to be judgment, but God is absolutely loving in that he has sent his very son to die for our sin. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus Christ dying for the sins of all then who trust in him. We can't be saved by anything we do. We can't be saved by our good works. We're not saved by our religiosity. We're not saved, we're not gathered here today because we somehow think we're better than other people. We just got done confessing our sin. The very point of why we're here is because we know that we are sinners. We know we need salvation that we cannot achieve. And that's why salvation is by faith. The cross screams, you cannot do it. God has to do it. We are only saved by what Jesus has done and by trusting in him. And so if you're, if you're here today and you are a believer, you are someone who believes that message, I would invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. If you're here today and you're not a believer, we are so glad that you are here. We just ask that you would refrain. From this particular moment, as we see this is something specifically for believers. And so the Lord's Supper is a pictured promise of the gospel. It is a symbolic telling of the gospel. Christ's body and his blood given for us in his death for the very forgiveness of our sins and purchasing that new covenant. And so Paul says that I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me and in the same way Christ took the cup also after supper saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In church, as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.